You're listening to the Association Mashup. Explorations at the intersection of technology and culture. Hosted by Maddie Grant, culture designer at Propel. And Rick Bauckham, CEO and founder at Symmetry. All right. Hello, everybody. We are here at the Association Mashup, and we're super excited to have uh, our guest today, who is a shining light in the association world. He's super smart, knows everything about everything. So we're just going to pick his brain about a few topics today. Um, but Rick, why don't you tell our audience who we have with us today? Sure. Hi, Maddie, and welcome back, association peeps. Uh, we are very excited to have Benjamin Muscolino with us today. Uh, as Maddie said, he is a shining light in the association world. I've known Ben for, I don't know, five or six years uh, at least, and probably before that. I know him as AMS Geeks and Brizio, and there's something kind of new on the horizon, something to do with sangria and data and all of that. We'll let him chat about that a bit. But, you know, today's topic, we're going to talk about mergers and acquisitions in the association space. But Ben, before we do that, why don't you jump in and tell us about yourself? Thanks a lot, Rick. I really appreciate it and appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's really exciting. Um, I've had uh, you guys actually join me on the association podcast in the past as well. And yeah. um, I'm really excited to come join you guys today. Yeah. My background in the space is an interesting one. I started out, you know, selling to associations at Vocus, selling PR GR software to associations like a whole lifetime and a half ago, it feels like now. <laughs> and I started out on the sales side, right? I was making like 120 phone calls a day. Got to keep those Salesforce metrics up, right? Get my calls in. And, uh, and that wasn't the goal was to sell to associations and nonprofits. I just ended up finding um, a lot of success there and was recruited over to go work uh, at Avectra, which then became Abila, which then became Community Brands, which leads us into the topic that you said we're going to talk about today, I suppose, Rick. But uh, yeah, I, I spent several years there and, um, and for the last eight or so years, I've been running you know, implementation, integration, kind of consulting uh, business in the AMS space before, you know, taking over as CEO of Brizio at the end of 2019. And for me, I'm at this point now, Rick, where I'm a lifer. Like I don't see, I could, I do not see myself ever leaving working with associations and nonprofits. I just, I love it so much. So it's been a fast and furious. We're like, not going to let you go anywhere. Yeah. So you're, you're, we won't let you escape. So yeah. that's a great segue into the whole topic today about, you know, mergers and acquisitions in the association space. There's been a lot of it going on, not not just even the last few months, but really, you know, since the 2015, 2016, 2017. And then we seem to have a flurry of it going on again. Uh, I know even my own company's been involved in some of that, yours as well. And I guess I'll tee up the conversation by saying or asking the question for any of us to chat about is, you know, is the merger and acquisition activity good for the association industry? Yeah, I'll start, I guess. I mean, I think that there are good things about it. And I think that there are some things that we really need to keep an eye on as it relates to looking out for the best interests of some of our customers. Um, you know, the, I've really enjoyed it. I enjoyed being at Avectra when they had investment and then took on more investment. And I learned a lot through the Abila transition. And I'm lucky enough to be friends with a lot of people in this market. So I've had, as I like to jokingly say, I've had a seat at the kids table for a lot of these transactions because I'm friends with a lot of folks. And I've gotten to hear how some of these things have gone. I've learned a ton 
about you know what I hope will be some future M and A um, in my career uh, in years to come, and I view a lot of that as as positive. Um, I think that in some ways it has been a catalyst to innovation because I think that it has brought different groups of really smart people together from different brands under one uh, umbrella. And I think that um, with the money from, from private equity, I think in some cases, and there's been some, some private investors that I think have been maybe slightly more intentional about acquisitions. Amit comes to mind, right? Where um, he sits at the top of, of Blue Cypress versus a big private equity um, and they make decisions differently. But um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of pluses in bringing people together from different brands. Um, I don't want to cut to the chase. I have some criticisms of it too, but like Maddie, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's it's so interesting that you should bring up innovation because that's obviously, you know, this podcast is about the the intersection of technology and culture and innovation is, is very clearly a big culture element. Um, but I think also what's interesting from the three of us is that, you know, as people who have basically services or consulting and or consulting companies, you know, we've been in a position to watch all of these vendors evolve and grow and merge and unmerge. <laughs> and some of them went away and, you know, others moved into the corporate space. Um, and, you know, after being in this business for, you know, many years. I was going to give a number, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just, it, it's, I feel like we have a unique perspective, like a, like a 50,000 feet perspective on seeing, you know, what's happening with all these companies and the culture piece like really underlies it. So um, what I've seen is certain PE related acquisitions, um, Culture is literally like the last thing they care about, but because the association industry is about building relationships, you know, what happens is some, some of the customers end up losing the relationships that they used to have, you know, with the people or the account managers that they used to work with. And then when everything shifts around, <clears throat> you know, they, they lose that. So that's another kind of culture element. So there's definitely good and bad. Um, in the whole scenario, but it's been super fascinating to to watch it happen. It has, and I I, I actually wrote about this back in 2016-17 when Aptify did their deal with Community Brands, and then there was the Higher Logic deal that came after that. And uh, I will put a number to mind. I'm now in my nearly fifth decade of working in in the in business in general. Ten years in the association world, but before I came to the association world, I did a good bit of investment banking and working with uh, merger and acquisition. And I'll I'll say this about uh, the positivity or negativity of, a, of an, the merger and acquisition space. Uh, investors don't invest in places where they don't get a return, right? So it, it, a private equity firm or any kind of investor is not going to put their money down uh, if they don't see a return coming back for it. So I guess the what I'm saying about that is that it's a positive thing that the money's coming in, that the interest is coming in, that the mindset is coming in, that is an investment mindset. Uh, you know, I, I sold Symmetry last year to Blue Cypress and, you know, and Maddie, you guys have gone through some of that. And Ben, you've had some of your own kind of M&A activity go on there. Um, and I think there's the, the, you know, the nice thing about being in the association spaces. What I'm seeing is that that investment activity seems to be working very parallel in the mission driven 
you know, we're purpose-driven kind of organizations. Uh, I don't know if you guys are seeing the same thing, but, you know, Maddie, you and I are part of kind of the same umbrella. And Ben, I know you're out there, you know, driving mission for your customers every day as well. Yeah, I, and I would say, you know, it is positive, generally speaking. And I think, you know, more money and uh, can help drive that innovation. I think that where they find that upside that you were just talking about, Rick, is is interesting for me. Um, and I don't want to go negative on this, but like there are little things out isolate payment processing, which is a really touchy subject that nobody wants to talk about. And AMS companies, I haven't seen the books. I don't own a billion dollar portfolio company, but I think it's safe to assume that they're monetizing, you know, payments, uh, partnerships. And I think it's smart. What I, what I get frustrated with is that I think there are some that are saying this is the only option. And if you don't want to do that, then we're going to make it difficult for you. We're going to put a barrier to make it your own decision around that. And I've seen it very recently. Even today, I had a conversation with a group that wanted to go with a a different payment processor than the one suggested by their AMS. And they put a very big barrier in front of them to do that. And I think sometimes uh, we are relying on, like the the funny thing about credit card processing is they look at, you know, the transactions, they know it's all going to be there. So they're like, how much of that can we get? And I don't disagree with, if you can provide a really good rate to them and all things being equal, you can get a cut of that because you have a really big portfolio and you can have a good, you know, partnership with, with one of these payments companies, but to force it on your customers when it may not be in their best interest um, it's tough because I don't know that anybody's in a position to come to the association's defense. And I think that's is possibly one of the only downsides, but maybe the first sign of it, of some of the big uh, you know, moves that have been made in this market, because who do the associations rely on to come to their defense and say, we need to make sure we're focused on the customer, the association, their mission, and these executives and allowing them to make the best decisions, you would think ASAE would be in the best position to help rally with them, except their biggest sponsors are all of these companies that are doing this. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I, yeah. And I may be the first person to say this on a podcast this bluntly, um, but, yeah, but like, this love, is a conversation that has to be had. I love that yeah. you said that because I feel the same way. And to me, this is it. I mean, of course, everything is a culture issue to me because that's <laughs> what I do. But it's literally putting efficiencies over retention, right? Which is essentially bottom line kind of a culture issue. And if you care more about retaining the customers that you already have by maintaining those relationships, then maybe you can give a little on the payment processing thing. You know, even if you do lose a little bit of money, you know, on the front end, but you would gain that money, you know, X times, you know, fold in the renewals every year because, you know, you're working with them. Um, but if you're if it's all just the bottom line, then, you know, that that just I don't know. It it bothers me. <laughs> well, I think that's a good point. I think, you know, when I again, when I was an investment banker, you know, what we looked at was the time horizon to an exit. Right. So, you know, if you're if the if the acquirer is looking at an acquisition and saying, oh, we need to be out of that in five years. And here's the number that we need to the multiple we need to get and getting out. That's a very different thing. than, um, and again, I'll self-serving, but I'll look at what Amit is doing with a portfolio company. He's building a group of companies. 
right, that are purpose driven. And it's more of a portfolio of things that aren't necessarily and, and very much not oriented around an exit strategy. You know, I, I invest at a million, I need five million out and then I'm done. Right. And uh, that's the strategy of the of the of not all all investors, not all M&A is about that. It goes one of two ways, in my view. It's an extraction view or it's an investment view. You're either acquiring customers and you're, you know, the, the, the word in the consult, the overused consulting word is synergies, but it's also used a lot in investment banking. What are the synergies? And anytime you hear, hear a, an investor talking about synergies, you know, you know, they're doing the customer acquisition thing and they're looking at, you know, how do I downsize and get efficiencies? And I'll look at that multiple, you know, five years from now. So I think, you know, it can be both, but I mean, it, it, it's one or the other, but you've got to look at that in terms of, uh, who is your vendor being acquired by, you know, what's their investment strategy. And, you know, to the extent that you can influence that, I think it's, it's a useful kind of framework to look at that through. I think that they're all learning from each other too. I think that when private equity, um, not, I wouldn't say it first came in, but when it started to become something that we were all really paying attention to, which was probably, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago at most when it really started to ramp up. And over the last four or five, it's really gone. It's been kind of fun to watch, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think they're all learning from each other too. I do wonder at, at what point did some of them go, you know, um, go hard and say, we're going to pull in some really strategic companies and pull these together and then make acquisitions to have competing products in the portfolios, which I don't think is a bad thing. A lot of them represent different segments of the market. Um, at what point do they, you know, say this was our playbook for three years or five years or whatever it was, Rick, and, they, and they're not able to execute on that. At what point do they go, you know, Richard Gere and Pretty Woman and start disassembling the shipyard and say, you know what, let's sell off this piece of the business and let's sell off this piece of the business. And I don't know that we've seen that happen, at least very um, visible to us yet, but um, I would guess that that may happen at some point because I don't know that uh, that private equity in all cases um, is being executed the way that they drew it up in the boardroom uh, in this market. Well, I and also, I to your point, I also think the association market is like a small piece of a very giant puzzle too. 100%. You know, like a, we're like one little chess piece like a little pawn <laughs> and there's, you know, bigger, much bigger, even the nonprofit, um, the charitable nonprofit market is a much bigger market than the association. So, so, you know, a lot of PE firms are, are way, way up in the clouds beyond what we're seeing on the ground for sure. And I, well, it's one of the factors in building your models, right? So yeah. the size of the market. And so I don't know how many members are of ASAE 40,000 ish, something like that. Uh, and so if you look at the size of the association market that where, where the three of us operate all the time, it's a pretty tiny market, right? So, you know, whatever product you build and whatever investment you make, there's a market saturation point that you're going to hit because the size of the market's only so much. So I would expect to your point, Ben, that there's some consolidation yet to play itself out. And perhaps some divestment, you know, on the end of some of these investments that we saw five or six years ago. But you're right, Maddie. It's uh, we 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 love what we do, and we love our 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 audiences. Uh, but uh, it is a pretty small market when you compare it to anything else: banking, financial services, manufacturing. Yeah, all of that. Absolutely. Well, and talking of consolidation, I, it's been fascinating to see what happened in the last year with 
uh, virtual events and virtual platforms. Like, you know, everybody had to pivot and add to their, I mean, you know, the first few months of the pandemic, it was just getting conferences online. But then, you know, everybody else jumped in and said, oh, we can do that too. <laughs> Even if they were, you know, an LMS or an online community or like a, you know, video conferencing software or a mobile app or whatever, you name it. <laughs> and then there's all kinds of new players with, you know, new like networking platforms that are purely for networking because that's like the missing piece from a virtual conference. Um, so I just love, I get all excited and I love watching, you know, all these different companies like duke it out to see, you know, who's going to, who's going to end up on the top of the stack when the dust settles. You know? Event tech yeah. has been one of the fun ones to watch. Like if you look, I mean, there's a lot of event tech companies that sold just pre pandemic. And I've talked to some of those founders and they're like, oh, thank God I sold when I did. Right. Um, because maybe they weren't virtual. Uh, and then, yeah. and then, you know, they've there has been a lot of focus on, I mean, there are people that started virtual event software companies that sold them six months into the pandemic that were like, I capitalized on this and I sold and this is incredible. Yeah. Um, and then you've got like what I find interesting and it's just relevant because it just happened, but like Cvent um, went public again uh, just the other day. That's and I, th I think that they had become non-public. I'm not going to, it's not the right nomenclature, I'm sure. Right. But um, because in Vista, like owned, I think the majority of them and all of those things, but what's cool about them is they normally have what, like five or 10 people at their, at their user conference, which is a big conference. And they had 20 or 30 or 40,000 people at their, their, their virtual conference in 2020. And they said, let's take this money, this private equity, this big, you know, you know, juggernaut of a event tech company, let's build a you know, virtual platform, which they didn't have. And usually they have a track record of growing by acquisition. And they said, let's just do this ourselves. Nobody knows events as well as we do. We've got all these leaders of these different companies that we've bought and different technologies. And some of it may be old, right? But they've been really successful. They have an incredible sales engine over there. And they just went public again. And it's on the heels of in the middle of a pandemic. And it's, yeah. it's interesting to see like some of the, again, like innovation that, that the pandemic's fueled, that private equity's fueled. Money does make a difference uh, as long as you have the right leadership, I think. Yeah, I used to have a mentor that told me he was trying to teach me how to surf and he said, don't fight the wave, right? Go with the wave. So sometimes it's opportunistic. <laughs> and uh, I never did learn to surf, by the way. But, uh, you know, I think that, that that always leads me to believe or wonder about how did the how do these new startups, how do they, how, where are the new entrepreneurs that are coming in to the space and how do they get attention? Because I, and this may be heresy, I'll say it. I, I think that all of us feel like um, most of our technology is pretty long in the tooth. It's pretty, you know, yeah, I, I come from other industries and I look at the association tech stack and I say, we solved that in banking and financial services or in telecom, or we did that years ago. And the stuff that we're doing here, you know, doesn't work together that well in many cases. And it's going to take some investment to make that happen. And it's either going to come from this outside money coming in, the PE money coming in, or the entrepreneurs, the startups are going to have to, you know, figure out some way to survive. So I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, for me, I, I started out, you know, uh, in 2019 when I stepped away from what I was doing and said, I want to reinvent and I want to do this with the right people around me and, um, 
and see what that looks like and what I can do on my own. I started out with a job board, you know, amsjobs.com. And I said, you know, if there's one thing that I'm really passionate about, it's this market. And it was all, it kind of, I bought AMS jobs years ago on the heels of someone texting me and saying, Hey, I'm leaving. And I had worked for them with them for like 12 years in the association tech space. And they said, Hey, I'm leaving to go work at Dell tech. And it broke my heart. Cause I'm like, if, if I had known this person wanted a job or they needed to advance their career, I could have called 50 associations that would have hired them. Right. Yeah. And so I thought, gosh, we need to do a better job of organizing the technology in this market to stay in this market, right? The, the technology talent that is, and the understandings of systems and the context of what we do. And then at AMS Geek, um, which came a year later, as soon as people you know heard that I, I hung a shingle again, uh, I started to get a lot of integration or a lot of integration work, I would say specifically, we do a lot of consulting work, but um, I really always liked the integration market and connecting systems. And uh, we started to do very well there. And I was fortunate enough to win a small government subcontract last year too. And I said, let's take this money and let's incubate, right? Let's build from within. Like we don't have any investors. It's me. I gambled my life savings to start these businesses again. And now we've done really well. Let's build something, right? Because consulting for me is my passion um, and understanding uh, challenges that people are having is my passion. I can't always fix them. That's why I hire smart people that are smarter than me. <laughs> but um, but then data sangria, you know, we, we built this product that we now have like almost 50 customers on. It's a middleware. It's an iPass for the association market. And I named it a long time ago, but I decided not to roll it out because I, I, I like to challenge myself and say, hey, how many customers can we get before we even need to stand up and, and tell everybody we have this? But to your point, you don't even have you a know, website, right? Isn't that yeah, we're, we're actually, I was on a call with our web vendor just before we sat down today to, um, and it was funny because it was a, a friend of mine that's a, a consultant that said, hey, Ben, we, we've sent you a couple of customers. We have some big customers. We like what you're doing here. But for crying out loud, can you put a website up so you look like a real company uh, on this product? <laughs> so so we're doing it. All right. We're doing Love it. it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that it is. I bet you uh, bought the really, domain though, like long time The ago. domain I already owned. Forget yeah. about that. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> among many others. Off topic, but looking back at my Google, at my GoDaddy history and like all the like business ideas I've had in the last like 20 years or whatever from all the weird domains I bought. Anyway. <laughs> it's so fun. It's so fun though. When I worked at Vocus, one of the things that I started to learn a lot about was content syndication strategy and the business that existed behind that and the money that Vocus would pay to some of these organizations, Yahoo and some of these other things to say, Hey, we're going to publish press releases on these RSS feeds when people select those, when they publish those. And we would like to pay you X amount of dollars to syndicate those onto this business tab on Yahoo News or something like that. Um, and I was like, wow, the business behind that like fascinated me, just these channel partnerships to, you know, rising tide, right? All that, all that good stuff. And I started buying up newswire domains. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna own the industry niche newswires. And to this day, the only newswire I ever launched was SAS Newswire, and it's still there, and I haven't updated it in three years. Um, but they paid me for a little while to to actually like syndicate press releases onto uh, onto that website for them. And I'm fascinated by that. And I became addicted. And every time I would buy a domain name, 
I would get the email confirmation that you've bought this domain name. And then I would quickly like on my phone say, this is the idea I had when I bought this. So I have, oh, so you like, have a note. <laughs> I, have, I have like 600, like one eighth baked business plans in my inbox from all these domains <laughs> I bought over the years. It's kind of hilarious. Remind me to teach you about lean canvases so you can take that one sentence into something, <laughs> at least a one pager. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> You know, there's a, we, we've kind of been talking along the lines and, and at least the backdrop of a lot of this has been about product kind of acquisition and, you know, the software products and, you know, the things we buy as licenses. And and I know all three of us are in the services business by and large, right? You just talked about a product that you're building, but uh, there's actually been money coming in too. All three of us have been part of this, either putting money in or being part of uh, an acquisition that was oriented around services companies. And I'm seeing more of that. Uh, certainly, our company was acquired uh, last year, as was Maddie's. And, and Ben, you've done some work in that space in acquiring or starting. So it's it's interesting to me that, you know, in a business that's not traditionally acquired you know services business aren't really you know pure play consulting business for example is not something you see at the top of every you know pe firms acquisition list but we're seeing a lot more of that especially from my perspective in the association space uh, any thoughts about why that's happening yeah i mean to me it all boils down to people right i think that the more momentum and growth and M&A that's gone on in this market, I think that it becomes very apparent that without the right people, um, it's really hard to run these companies and fold these companies in. And I think that consultants in this market, generally speaking, have had a little bit of patience about how we've gone about doing things. And it means that we've built out really good teams of people, probably better cultures sometimes than the speed of some of these product companies and how they've grown. And to me, I think it, it, it has less to do with, of course, it factors into what you're going to pay for a company and what earnouts look like and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think to me, it's all about the people, right? And I think that this industry has done an incredible job of having some entrepreneurs like yourselves, um, and I'd like to think that I'm on track to, to do this really well as well, is collect really good people and diverse groups of people that um, are incredible at understanding the context of a market and the challenges that we're having. So for me, I think it's you're buying the people and you have to buy their book of business with it and pay them for it, but you're buying these incredible people and hopefully treating them well so that they stay in your businesses and, and, and uh um, and help you have an impact across, you know, what it is your goal was for for collecting these people and these books of business. Yeah, I, will yeah, I agree. Say for, um, for Blue Cypress specifically, they something I don't think the the industry really knows hardly anything about is that it's an it's part of the evergreen movement, which is all about growing businesses and investing in them for the long term um, and, you know, being very specifically mission driven and helping, you know, customers that are mission driven, i.e. associations. So I feel like that's, it, it falls right exactly in line with what you're saying. Like if, if we were chosen as companies to join Blue Cypress, it's because we can have a part to play in, in, like the the tide that rises all the the associations that we work with, you know. And you guys are both founders, so take a look at the product companies that have been acquired, and the leadership move out pretty quickly at a lot of them, oh, right? Yeah. And 
And you see what, like for you guys are perfect examples, right? You guys are hunkered down and yeah, we're really having a huge, yeah, I know. Right. And that's, and that's the big difference between, I think to your, you know, to your question, Rick, like, you know, the run on buying consulting businesses versus all the product acquisitions, they're playing out very differently because of the people, I think. Right. Yeah. I was not looking to sell, you know, when we, when we had started having the conversations and, and part of the negotiation or the strategy, if you will, uh, and the conversations that ensued after the initial interest was expressed was, you know, I'm not interested in, in selling, you know, a product or, or, you know, selling the company unless you buy into the culture that we've created and the, and I mean, you know, I'm I'm pretty proud of the fact we just got a, a 92 net promoter score from all of our clients this year. We just did our our year end uh, customer survey and Yay, you know, 90, awesome. 90, 92 is a pretty good score, right? World yes. class, and yes. uh, we're 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 thrilled with that. But it be, it comes from the people. It doesn't come from a set of products. Now we've got all the best practices and you know and all the things that we do that are part of our process, uh, but people are what make the process work, right? And, um, you know, we put together this podcast, uh, Maddie and I did around, because it's the intersection of culture and technology, right? And I, and Maddie knows my background around my affinity for culture, because I'm, I'm married to a social scientist. So it's always, you know, kind of <laughs> forefront for me about, you know, what culture is doing and how it operates, uh, which is a little foreign to me, because I'm a quant, right? I'm the guy who puts the numbers to things and, and all of that. But it is so interesting to see that that's what's making these things successful. I think it's what makes your company successful, Ben, and it's what we think will be successful for us as members of the, the family that we're a part of. It's that it is culture uh, in working in parallel with, you know, in our case, it's about, we, we spend a lot of time on technology. Uh, and uh, I don't see those things as things that you can separate uh, from each other. I've heard Maddie say, you know, this in, in several different ways, the idea that you can have uh, a culture by design or culture by default, but you're always like a culture exists, whether you like it or not. And I remind, like when you said that to me the first time years ago, I like wrote it down and I still have the sticky note somewhere. Cause even if I'm not designing the culture, like I need to be aware of it and make sure that we are not controlling it, but molding it into a positive place for everybody, for our customers, for ourselves. And the, the, this market as a whole, I think has a culture to it as well. I, I went to ASA tech, uh, this week and just seeing everybody in person, I think like re, we have this concept, uh, this, this phrase that we use, um, at association wire with those companies about culturing people in. And I've, and I've taken that and started using it at Brizio as well to get people cultured in. Right. And it's, where do we start people and I'm a firehose guy, right? I'm not the most structured person, which is why I, I surround myself with people that are structured, but I'm a firehose guy. I'm like, I don't care what department you're in. You're going to sit in demos. You're going to sit on implementation calls. You're going to sit on some unhappy customer calls. You're going to soak it in. And then we're going to settle you in to what we feel like, you know, you're really going to thrive and help us with it, the business. Um, but it, even in our market, and this is where the culture of our market has shifted a little bit with M&A. Right. And I think that, you know, I, I, I try and do my job to bring people together and I think I do a good job of it, but not as a company, as a person. 
Um, and I think that, you know, ASAE and a lot of the other organizations that represent um, groups of associations need to be really aware of what M&A is doing to this market so that they can make sure they're properly advocating for the groups of associations and associate, association executives, as well as it's our job as consultants. And I think that we all do a good job of advocating for our customers, but it is being changed around us. The culture of our market is being changed and I think in some ways good and in some ways bad, but we need to be aware of it because it's happening by default to, to your point, yeah. Molly, if, if we're not intentional about it. Well, and this is the thing, like it, it is happening to associations and to the companies that serve associations um, in a big way. And I wish there was more and, and I'm de- totally raising my hand to help out if there's a way to help out. But if there were more intentional ways of getting associations involved, like incubators, right? Yeah. Incubators or just ways to to get because a lot of associations are very interested in um, finding innovative products and you know building their own tech things. You know, like it's just mm-hmm. it's all very piecemeal or just they're all by themselves trying to figure it out. But if there were you know one or more kind of more centralized ways of say, of saying we can build some innovative things that will help serve this market, you know, hey, Mr. PE guy, would you be interested in helping fund it? You know, that would be even slightly more proactive and it wouldn't feel as much like it's all happening, you know, externally to this industry. <laughs> yeah, I love that I'm seeing people come to you guys at conferences and saying, you know, we need to talk. Right, because we need to talk about our culture. And I think the pandemic certainly has accelerated that and, and put more focus on uh, because the cat's out of the bag now, right? All that stuff that we used to tell people, we can't, you can't do that. You can't possibly work from home four days a week. You know, that's all BS. <laughs> uh, we just proved that it's true. That's not true. But, you know, and, and as technology people, I used, I grew up in that space and we always, it, talking about culture was always the third rail, right? we masked it with things like calling it change management, right? Instead of calling it culture, which is really what it was about, right? Because change management is about changing culture. Uh, but you, did, you didn't go in as a technology person and say, let's, let's have a culture conversation. Uh, you know, it was always, let's have a change management conversation. But I'm seeing people be much more intentional about that now and understanding that, you know, if you're a top-down kind of culture, that's gonna have one kind of impact. You know, if you're more collaborative, it's a very different dynamic. Well, until I started leading companies too, I was the guy that said, hey, they have really cool mission statement and words on their walls and they have a beer fridge. And I know Maddie's like cringing right now. But like, that was what I thought it was. Like when I was over at Vocus, we would have parties and do this fun. And the the culture was actually that we were a publicly traded company and we were quarter by quarter squeezing everything that we could out of that business. And they just tried to get us young people that didn't have lives or kids yet to help them get where they were going. And that's okay. That's a strategy. They actually did design that culture and they tried to mask it with an Xbox and some beers and making sure we work 12 hours a day. And that was cool. But as I've started to lead teams of people and realize that every time I hit the payroll button, uh, you're paying their mortgage and, you know, helping their kids go to school and all that, it's heavy, right? It's heavy. And you want to look at all of this and make sure it's sustainable all of a sudden because you're responsible for it. And these PE companies, um, I think, need to keep that in mind uh, every time 
you know, they realize that a payroll cycle hits, like there's a lot of people impacted and the people that work at the associations that consume their technologies are just as impacted because they need everything to work for them so that they can be successful in their roles and make sure that we can all continue to try and be happy people. The story, by the way, the ping pong table is coming back into fashion. Yes. Yeah, I do love that. Yeah. <laughs> because they now need to attract people back into the office who have literally zero desire to come back in. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Because they that they're, stuff come back and it's a good I thing. think it's going to take more than a ping pong table. Yes, it will. It will. <laughs> so, but I, you know, one of the things that we do in our culture that has made a difference for us, because same thing, you know, you, you talk about core values and mission statements and all that stuff, and the the, the stuff that you typically see on a, a conference room wall, and you know, one of the measures that we put together this year is an impact statement. It's a lives impacted, and when you think about it in the association world in particular, the impact that you're having on lives. I mean, individual lives is amplified. I mean, you may be a 75 person or 25 person association, but if you got, you know, 7,500 members or 10,000 members or 50,000 members, each one of those lives is touched by what you do. So I think the impact that people are seeing that they can have in this industry kind of changes the focus a bit. I think, you know, maybe... I think these kids that are coming up nowadays, and I hate to refer to them as these kids, but I'm old enough to do that, right? <laughs> so, but I think they they come to the table with a different social agenda, right? It's we want to have an impact. We, and, you know, I did grow up in the day when it was all about the balance sheet and you know how much you could extract and all that. I, I'm glad that uh, we're evolving. It's yeah. it's such a cool industry to be in, and when you start to really learn it, like there are, I, I've sat in front of some CIOs and some leaders. Rob Cashin over at AAP always strikes me as if you hear him talk about the mission of Academy of Pediatrics and who they serve, and the fact that you know pediatricians are not their members, right? It's these children and what they do, and it reminds you the multiplication effect of the association market, and then you know sitting back and thinking the idea. The reality is no one in this world is exempt from the work that we do in the association market because I don't care how exempt you think you are that you get in your car and you drive to the grocery store and stock shelves all day and then you come home and you have nothing to do with associations. Well, associations were responsible for the quality control of the beams that put up the frame in your house that you live in. They're responsible for certifications on things that have to do with your car to make sure that you safely got to and from work, <laughs> you have grocer associations and produce yeah, associations, vegetable associations, and you stocked those shelves with things that were, you know, in, like when they, the studies that were put together on when they were supposed to be harvested and how they're stored and how they're shipped and the unions that are associated with shipping those things. I mean, I don't care who you are in this world. You are not exempt from, the, the, the work and the passion that people do across the association and nonprofit markets. And that's why like working on the for-profit side of this is the coolest thing I'll ever do in my life, I think. Well, I think that's actually a lovely way to end this uh, episode since we're, of course, way over time as always. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, you, you, you had me no, on no, today. No. You should. You should have known what you we were getting know, into having me on. Yeah, no, it's impossible not to dig deep into this stuff. Um, but yeah, thank so you thank so, you so much. much. This is really thank awesome. you, Ben. We appreciate you being on, and Maddie, as always, great to see you again. And uh, for our audience out there, happy listening and happy holidays if you're listening uh, during that time frame. <laughs>
Yes. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And please share it with your friends. And visit us at symmetry.com and propelnow.co.